from the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont. This is 99.3 FM WBTV LP Burlington, streaming online at 993wbtv.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro. Today on Write the Book, you'll hear a conversation with Uem Akpan, whose debut novel is New York, My Village, published by Norton. Uem Akpan's fiction and autobiographical pieces have appeared in The New Yorker, The Nigerian Guardian, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, and more. His collection of stories, Say You're One of Them, won the Commonwealth Writers Prize, Africa Region, the Penn Open Book Prize, and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and was the 2009 Oprah Book Club selection. He is from Ikot Akpan Ida in the Niger Delta in Nigeria and lives in Gainesville, Florida. New York, My Village, concerns a Nigerian editor and winner of a Toni Morrison Publishing Fellowship named Ekong, who is about to begin the opportunity of a lifetime to learn the ins and outs of the publishing industry from its incandescent epicenter. While his sophisticated colleagues meet him with kindness and hospitality, he is soon exposed to a colder, ruthlessly commercial underbelly. Callous agents, greedy landlords, boorish and hostile neighbors, and beneath a superficial cosmopolitanism, a bedrock of white cultural superiority and racist assumptions about Africa, its peoples, and worst of all, its food. Reckoning at the same time with the recent history of the devastating and brutal Biafran War, in which Ekong's people were a minority of a minority caught up in the mutual slaughter of majority tribes, Ekong's life in New York becomes a saga of unanticipated strife. The great apartment deal wrangled by his editor turns out to be an illegal sublet crawling with bedbugs. The lights of Times Square slide off the hardened veneer of New Yorkers plowing past the tourists. A collective antagonism toward the other consumes Ekong's daily life, yet in overcoming misunderstandings with his neighbors, Chinese and Latino and African American, and in bonding with his true allies at work and advocating for healing back home, Ekong proves that there is still hope in sharing our stories. My interview with Uwem Akpan begins with my first question. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm assuming that New York, My Village is based at least in part on your own experiences, but I wanted to just ask you what the inspiration was, because maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I always wanted to write about the Biafran War. Yes. Um, this war that happened in my country in 1967, it ended 1970, a year before I was born. Okay. Um, so uh, the minorities of the Niger Delta, um, we have not been able to tell our story. So it has been the egos telling their story. Of course, they have these powerful writers like Chinua Achebe, Chimamanda Adechi, my friend Chinelo Paranta. So they're able to get their story, story out. Um, we've not been you know, able, we are minorities, and um, um, so that has been like something that has been burning within me for a long time. Yes. Okay. 
And then I started writing. And then I visited, started visiting the publishing houses of New York. And I realized how white they were. And just going in there and seeing the, you know, the lack of diversity in the demographics, you know, just, you know, it was just wrong for me. And I started like, you know, saying, oh, what would it be like for the black, the few black people, the few, you know, Asians, you know, the few um, Latinos that are here. Um, So that's how I started thinking about, you know, this. But I was so scared. I was too scared to, you know, to to critique publishing. Sure, sure. Then I, you know, I wanted to write an immigrant story. Yes. um, Of someone from my tribe, my ethnic group coming into America. And uh, to cut a long story short, I went to live in New York City as a Coleman Fellow of the New York Public Library. Okay. Um, And then it began to, you know, to click. Um, For the last 25 years, I had been visiting New York City, but it was always a blur to me. I couldn't tell where Chelsea stopped, where Hell's Kitchen began, and, you know, the east side, the west side. You know, I I just couldn't. I only knew and understood the Bronx. Um, So I went to live there for a year, and I was able to finally get a hang of the place, sort of. And then um, I'm like, okay, I'll situate this story in New York City as opposed to Las Vegas, which was my original, you know, uh, destination. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how the book, you know, uh, came about. Okay. All right. All right. Great. Yeah. Um, now, what year was it that you did that fellowship? 2013 to 2014. Okay. Okay. And when did you first come to the States? 1993. Oh, all right. And I stayed in the Bronx. And you stayed in the... <laughs> and what was the purpose of that trip? I came to study. I was a seminarian then studying for the Catholic priesthood. So I came to uh, to study. I spent my first two weeks in the Bronx before I was flown out to Omaha, Nebraska, Creighton University to study. That's an easier <laughs> transition, I bet. <laughs> well, actually, maybe not. <laughs> no, 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 no. Where I come from and here, a world of difference. Sure. Yeah, That's I'm just thinking really- it would be easier to navigate than New York City is more than what I is more what I meant. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now you were a Jesuit priest, but you no longer are. Is that correct? That's true. I left. Yes. in 2010. Yes. So, is that something we can talk about? I wanted to write. That's what was paramount in me, and I wrote my first book as a seminarian, basically, and it was easier because you didn't have pastoral responsibilities, okay? Now I became a priest. My first book did very well. Yes. The pressure on me. And then I knew my second book was going to be very rough and very risky. 
and trying so many things. And I didn't have it all together. And I began to feel I was doing all this with my hands tied behind me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's taken me 13 years to come up with this book. Yes. Um, I needed, you know, space. I needed to travel all over. And really, because it's my first novel. I didn't know how to write a novel before now. So, so after struggling for a while, I, I realized I had to this um we all write differently um and it, it doesn't matter whether there are other priests who are writers and priests uh but for me i you know writing is a very complex and unpredictable and sometimes painful experience so i i you know i had to let go of one of my gifts to concentrate and put all my energy into, you know, the writing. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk about New York, My Village, the voice of this novel, and your your main character's voice, but also the larger narrative voice of the novel is so compelling um, and so sort of um, forgiving, despite all kinds of um, terrible things that are happening to your main character. And is his name pronounced Ekong? Ekong, yes. Ekong, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's, he's subjected to indignities and outrage, um, and yet the larger narrative voice is so, uh, I, I, I just keep thinking forgiving. I don't know exactly what I'm saying, except that we keep coming back to a place of sympathy for him, but also he has sympathy for the larger world in a lot of moments, which is yeah. quite amazing. Anyway, so... Uh, As an example, in a string of scenes early on in the novel, in an immigration office in Lagos, he goes through this absurd (laughs) series of dehumanizing steps to acquire a visa. Uh, It's almost funny. It really is. And actually, it is a little bit funny because you make it funny, but it stops just short of being funny because it's so horrible what he goes through. Um, do you have an understanding of how you created that narrative voice to affect this outcome? You know, I just was so sympathetic to his situation, and I am not at all like him. You know what I mean? Like, I'm coming from yeah, yeah. a very different place. And yet, your narrative voice and Ekong's voice also just made me right there with him all the time. So do you know how you did that? Shella, first of all, I think it's it's a gift. Um, and God has given me a gift to write in a way that it touches the heart of the reader. And I always want the reader to be in there with the characters and experience and live it and be enthralled. Um, So I, I shoot for that. I want it to be funny. I want it because the humor you know, drives it deeper into the reader. Going to any embassy, Western embassies in developing countries is a mess. It's, it's, it's very traumatic. Yeah. Um, and even when you have, even when you have been given the visa before, if you have to go and renew, you are still very tense. Now, Americans have no way of knowing this because they don't experience this. Uh, the, the powerful countries have no way of knowing this. <clears throat> and so 
when we see the so-called caravan coming in from Latin America, you know, we are like, why can't they go to the embassy? Why can't they process it over there? They got no chance. Yeah. No right. chance whatsoever. So that was the impulse to, you know, to recreate something like this. Yes. Well, you did. You did it. <laughs> I want to say to you, Shella, very uh, succinctly, you know, I studied in this country for four years. Yeah. Um, I never had a problem with visas. Uh, those four years, I got two visas. Um, first, 1993, then it expired. 1995, I went back to the Lagos embassy and got another one. No problem whatsoever. And then I was supposed to come for my MFA in 2004. And I had everything ready. And I went to this interview. And the interviewer asked me to write a short story. Wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 you see? It's very unpredictable. That's terrible. That I'm, so I'm laughing. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's shocking. Uh, it, it, it's shocking. You know, I stood there. It takes me like a year to write a short story. So I'm standing there. This guy is like, yeah, yeah, write, write a short I thought he was kidding. He gave me paper and pen. So, so after 15 minutes or so, I could only write two sentences. And I was under a lot of pressure. You know, I write at night. I don't even write during the day. Oh, my gosh. I write lying down. I don't write standing up. And the fact that this guy could do this to me, not at gone point, but at visa point. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it hurts. You know, it hurts me. I've written about this in uh, something called back pages. So it'll come out in early November. Ah. You know, that experience. Yes. So um, when I was thinking about this, you know, story, it was easy for me uh, with all my experience of going to the embassies to know what to, you know, what to do. Yes. And to make it as uh, exciting for the reader as, you know, possible. Because when you are in the embassy, you are very tense. Anything can happen. Right. They can deny you. You don't have a lawyer. You have nothing. Yes. You know, so that's where, well, you know, that's where that came from. One thing I really admired about the scene, and now I actually admire it even more because your experience is not the same experience as Akong's, although it's informed by it, but yeah. you, your larger intention in the book, or certainly one of your larger intentions, is to um, write about the Biafran War. And in this scene, an interviewer asks Akong to explain the Biafran War, which, Biafran <laughs> war, which is huge, um, and his experience of that war. And, and it's incredible, though, because what you have him do is begin to figure out what he will say as she yeah. starts typing on a computer. So he has a minute to kind of compose himself and think about what he yeah. wants to say. And in that moment, you offer a half a page of um, terrifying um, uh, summary, but also detail about this war that the reader may or may not know anything about. But by the end of yeah. that half page, we know a lot more. That is mm -hmm. just in the narrative. 
And then I think probably what happens in that moment is he's sort of looking at the ceiling and kind of composing <laughs> in his head what he will say. And she yeah. decides that he looks crazy and decides to, to cancel his visa. I'm sorry if I'm giving away <laughs> this part of the book, but it's early on. Yeah, yeah. So that was, and now I'm really impressed because, in fact, your experience was very different than his. And mm-hmm. you managed to pull in your larger intention of the book in this scene, which so well conveys what it's like to be in that office. Yeah. Um, just incredible. Um, so, uh, okay, so here's my question about that. That scene, it, it conveys a lot of information to the reader very quickly. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about conveying information in creative ways to a reader. Yes, it's uh, for the purposes of fiction. Um, it works, conveying information like this works when you have created the emotional space for that information. Mm. You know, in this very tense moment, it slows down the story, but it doesn't really slow down the story. It changes, you know, perspective. It gets you in the head of, you know, uh, the character. Yes. So I, when I have information like this, I attach, attach, what I call an emotional import to it. I create an environment that allows you to get this information. Uh, but in the because now this information stays in the mind of the reader because he's already in a very tense situation and he needs to do this to save himself. Um, so all through the book, I do things like this. Yes. When I slow down, yes. it's at that point where the reader can take it. Um, because I'm conveying so many, so much information all through the book that is alien to at least my American, you know, right. audience. Right. Uh, and when I, when my Nigerian audience, when they read this book, you know, America is also going to be very strange to them. Uh-huh. And I'm slowing down for their own sake. Uh, so this was something that I had to find a balance and figure out how to do this so that nobody is shortchanged. It strikes me now, two things strike me, that the, the, the American scenes that would seem alien to perhaps an African reader, um, uh-huh. it reminds the moments in the church in New Jersey might uh-huh. be, and, and I feel like in all of these things, you're using setting to great benefit. To, and maybe are you using the setting as part of how you slow things down? I'm curious if you would say that's true. Yes. You see, part of it is, I don't really sit down and think these things through. Mm-hmm. I go with what works. What do I need to do to help the reader get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. So it got to that point. I'm like, okay, um, it will be powerful if church became part of this because the Kong is already Catholic and is, he's got to go to church in, in America. You know, the Catholic church, um, is the same worldwide. So it should be a place of comfort. Although in, we dress differently. <laughs> yes, yes. But the liturgy is the same. Right. You know, so when white people come to Africa, they understand that the Catholic mass will be the same, 
the same missile that is used in New York City is what is used in Ikorokpaneda or in Sokoto. So that gives you a sense of community that you'll enter into that church. It will be very different, but the basic things will be there. You know when communion will come. For example, you know the four Eucharistic prayers. Uh, the priest cannot go beyond, you know, picking one of those. Okay, so so these things also help my book in the sense that, you know, a lot of people have a sense of what Catholicism, you know, this kind of thing. So my Nigerian readers will get it immediately. My American readers will get it immediately. It's left for me to create this drama, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. and think of what, you know, racism is, you know, like in this uh, context. I mean, I was a priest for for years. I was a seminarian in this country. I saw things. I heard things. I experienced things. Um, so I've always wanted to create an iconic church scene, like in the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Oh. With the Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baptismal you know, the, 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 the baptismal, uh, baptism scenes of the Godfather. So now I had this chance. I was like, yes, yes, this will, you know, this will work. Um, and for me, as long as it grabs the reader's interest and contributes, you know, to the book, I'm, you know, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, so because I need my reader to go with me to wherever the key character goes. I want him, uh, I want him to become the key character so he can experience all of this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uem, what about writing this book do you suppose presented the most challenge for you and what maybe came more easily? Writing about publishing. Yeah. Um, I've told you I was afraid because I did not think I would be published. Uh, The publishing industry is very insular, very powerful, very brutal, very racist. So I, 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 I was so, so, so scared, but it's something I had to do. Yes. For, for, not just the minorities, for all the white people in the system who were rooting for me to succeed and who said to me, when you are, what you are saying is very true. Uh, some of us don't know what to do. It's very hierarchical. They fire and hire when they want. Um, they don't need to advertise for jobs. Mm-hmm. They have their secret recruitment. They keep hiring each other and firing each other. So I was very, the more I knew about it, the more scared I was. Um, to write about it. <laughs> to write about it. Or even to be part of it. I know my first book did very well. So I'm a beneficiary of the system in that sense. I have friends in the system. Uh, but I was very scared because like you are rocking the boat. Okay. Um, the war was very scary to me also. Uh, the fact that I grew up listening to all these stories of the war does not mean 
I knew how to put it, put them into a, you know, narrative, into a story form. You were born right after the war, right? So even if I saw the war, as it it can even be more difficult writing about it if you you know because you saw it. Right. Um, it's it's a very painful thing in Nigeria, and as I've said to you, we were minorities in Biafra. The Igbos have never, never listened to us. Mm. Most of them have no intention of hearing our story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew the task I was taking on um, and the research I needed to do. I don't know whether you have read the acknowledgement in the book. Yes, yes, I did. Okay, yeah. yes. So you saw how far I went and the yes. risk I, I, I took. So... All of this, I, I was very scared. Yes. What came easily? Bedbugs. <laughs> I have a question about bedbugs. It's not funny, is it? It's terrible. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. You know, cooking, you know, the the, the food scenes, uh, those came, you know, easily. Describing parts of New York, like the Bronx, like Chelsea, like, you know, um, <clears throat> Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, those came, you know, those were easier for me to deal uh, with. Okay, should you have a question about bedbugs? Yeah, let's talk about bedbugs. <laughs> so I do know from your acknowledgments that you had first-hand experience with this, which was horrible. Yeah. But in the book, okay, so I'm just going to, I'm quickly taking us away from the bedbugs, even though that's the, the, the underlying subject. But yeah. for me... It became this extraordinary metaphor, and I wonder if I'm overthinking this, but it felt like an extraordinary metaphor for something insidious and seemingly undefeatable, which is like racism and hatred. You know, I mean, I was just like, did we do this on purpose or is this just... You got it. You got it. You got it. it. You know, I'm celebrating it because many readers don't get it. They don't... They they, are so pained locked into the fear and terror of the bed bugs. They don't see the larger picture, yeah. the symbolism. Yeah. So you, yeah, you, you, you know, you get it. Thank you. See? you. Good. Yeah. Because what I'm trying to do, you know, I, you know, is to say, well, we have, we had this big war. The gruesome and all of that. It's a big, it was a big thing. And, you know, and then you guys have this small, you know, this small thing in your city, uh, you're not able to defeat it. You know, when I, I I came to New York, I it took me a while to know what was happening to me that I had bed bugs. And I it's funny because I had two bites on my left uh side, you know. I created bed bugs, all these bites for the for Kong and for the neighbors. Yeah. And figure out a way to keep making it more and more frightening and painful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and they are neighbors that he didn't connect with at first. He didn't understand them very well at first. Yeah. And like war, they bond over this experience. Don't yes. They? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, for me, if you are going to bring something, uh, something powerful like this into the, into the book, it has to go to the core of the book. Uh, the resonance has to reach there. Otherwise, 
you know, it will not be tight enough. Right. And so for me, at least the most painful thing about the bed bugs, you know, is that finally they, they get to the little girl and the brother. Mm-hmm. And that's where there's real pain. All the things we are suffering from racism, tribalism, um, they finally get to our kids. Yeah. They suffer. They right. may not have the word. You know, they may not be able to, to talk about this, but it, it, you know, these things finally, you know, hit them. She was, so, uh, she was wonderful. The, the, Ujai, is that her name? Ujai. Ujai. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. She yes. was, hey, she you was, should come to Anang Land. You are getting these things right. <laughs> you come and visit our ethnic group back home. Come to Anang Land. Yeah, Ujai. And Ujai, the, the, she's wonderful. The brother is Igwat. The brother is Igwat. Um, yeah, so, so I, you know, if I created bed box, I wanted the experience to be very deep so the key characters are affected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I, 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 I consider myself very lucky uh, to have been able to put the you know bed box, the bed box uh, theme into the book mm-hmm. because I love the story Jaws, the movie Jaws a lot. Um, I've read the book, I have seen the movie, and I've always said to myself, what can I ever put in a story? It would be that horrifying. <laughs> To be like that big shark in the water. Right. And I came to New York, I said, bed box. Yeah. Bed box can do this in its own, you know, way. Um, and, you know, I was able to put it together. So I'm very thankful to, you know, thankful to God. And I'm happy that you get it, that yeah. many people understand what I was trying to do. You did it very well. And that's why. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's let's talk a little bit about race and racism. The book looks at race from a number of different angles, um, and one of the angles that that it studies is people of color from another place who assimilate into a new culture, and how race plays into that assimilation or that effort at assimilation. I thought that was an interesting aspect of the plot. Um, again, a very sympathetic voice and a very, you know, ultimately a Kong understands what everybody's going through in his community. So how did you find it writing about race and racism? And I also wondered, did you find it clarifying? Was it painful? Um, And yeah, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's painful. You see, in many ways, it is, it is what it is. When you come to a place like for minorities in this country, for example, there's so many things that are happening around you. You cannot react to all of them. If you did that, you'll be thrown out anyway. They'll say you've lost your mind. Right. I, I think one of your acknowledgments was to a friend in the church who had told you that sometimes all you can do is just be present Yes, yes. And not try to fix every single thing. I'm, I'm not getting yes. the words right, but okay. Yes, yes. 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 You know, so a lot of things are happening. You cannot change everything. You have to, like a Kong, you have a thousand and one conversations in your head. You have to process things very quickly. As you are doing this, you don't give it away. 
your countenance should not give any of this away because you are surrounded by people who may not understand you and they'll quickly demonize you and say, you cannot fit in. You don't know what you're doing. It's the same thing with, you know, if you're a woman and you work in a, a company with a hundred men, um, you'll be having a lot of conversations in your head trying to figure out how do I fit in? How do I play the politics? How do I survive this? Right. You know, so, you know, when you come, you know, to a new culture like this, you cannot fight everything. Otherwise, the, this, the narrative will be that you cannot fit into the new place. Right. So you figure out. A way. So I wanted to dramatize this. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's the functional aspect of this. Um, because Ekong needs to remain a good person till the end. So this circumscribes his rage. Uh, and I had to look for the right time for him to, you know, to fight back. Like when he finally goes to Jack in the office. Yes. Yeah, yeah. By that time, the reader says, yes, go for him. <laughs> Go for him. So, so, so I had to figure out a way to do that. Yes. He takes in a lot of fire. By, so by the time he goes to do this, you are with him. You're like, this is justified. Yes. Vindicated. <laughs> yeah, vindicated. Um, but, you know, as, a min- as minorities, we are not, ex- we are not exempt. Um, we cannot exempt ourselves from sympathy and empathy, okay? A lot of what white people do, many of them don't even know what they're doing, but they have the power, so they'll hurt you anyway. Uh, Sometimes you don't even have the space to react because if you you try to react, they said an angry black man. Yeah, right. Once, Once you've been seen like, so you carry this weight Angry black woman. Yes. Um, if you have been following the conversations around uh, uh, publish publishing, also paid me. So there was a hashtag yes. like that. You know, the fight within publishing to bring in minorities. You would have heard the interviews. You know, uh, the few minorities in the system talking about how much they agonize before they send a single email to their bosses because they don't know what word will trigger something here. If I say I'm angry, what does that mean? Well, I, you know, how is this going to be interpreted? Okay. So having been a minority for a long time here in the U.S. and back in Nigeria, you know, I'm very familiar with, you know, how you quickly, what you need to do to fit in, to build relationships. Um, Otherwise, you, you know, you will not survive. By the time the group comes together and says, this uh, this colleague is not sociable enough. That's already an indictment. They're not saying you're not sociable because they have hurt you. Mm -hmm. They just said, hey, you're not sociable enough. 
And if they write this in your report, in their, in a, you know, the evaluation of it, you're done. Right. It's like trying yeah. to get a visa all over again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was trying to carry all of, you know, all of this. Uh, Soyekong remains a good person. Somebody who has suffered a lot is compassionate. So when he pushes back, the reader says, yes, I would have done this thing a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. I came to a realization as I read this book about another prejudice that we're all familiar with, and it crosses lines of gender and race, and that is the prejudice against people who do not want to have children. Um, it's a That's a thing. I mean, uh, do you agree that that's a thing? Like, like people don't want you not to want to have children. <laughs> I mean, in your culture, in America, it's more acceptable. In my culture, it's very, very new. Oh, okay. Well, the, I mean, and that's the thing. It was, it's a little dated now. I mean, those yeah. those were prevalent thoughts back in probably the 60s, 70s, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in Nigeria, you know, nobody would understand that kind of thing, but people are beginning to make those choices. Yeah. Okay. I, I always like to ask my guests uh, what they have read lately that they might recommend to listeners. Have you read any books lately that you would say, oh, I, people should read this. It's really great. I I will say, um, okay, Dibes, uh, never look an American in the eye. Uh, the writer is okay, Dibes. I have quoted him in my book. Never look an American in the eye. Um, I'm also reading uh, all the water I've seen is running. And this is by uh, El- Elias Rodriguez. All the waters I've seen is running. Okay. And, uh, okay, the best book is, uh, is a memoir. I never look an American in the eye. And he's talking about coming from the from Nigeria into the US and what his experiences were when he first you know arrived you know here um chinelo parantas uh, under the udala trees okay and then there's a book called palace walk by Naguib Mafus. Okay, wow. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's a lot. I like yeah. to offer ideas to, to my listeners for other things to read. Yeah. Now, I know you're just starting a book tour very soon, but are you writing anything new or do you know what you're going to work on next? No, I'm very nervous. I'm very exhausted. Okay. So at least when the book comes out on the 2nd, I'll have the chance to think about what, you know, what to write. Yeah. I just hope, I pray it doesn't take 13 years. <laughs> well, you did an MFA in that time and a lot of research and travel. So give yourself a break. <laughs> yeah, I got my MFA before my book came out. Yeah. But did you, yeah. were you working on this book as you did your MFA? You must have been. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, wonderful. So I have one last question for you. I always like to ask uh, my guests for advice for for writers. A lot of my listeners are writers. And in your case, I thought I might ask for advice about writing something 
so close to you and, um, and sort of a huge subject such as war, advice for a- approaching that kind of a subject? Um, I think the best thing, what fiction does very well is to make it personal, mm-hmm. to bring things very close. So look for those handles that will bring the experience, personalize the experience. Um, like, you know, I created the character Ekam. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it's a way to bring the work, you know, make that character likable, give him a mission, and therefore you can figure out the context uh, you want to show the pain and the sensitivity and possibilities of reconciliation, you know, within this uh, conflict. And so even when I wrote about street, you know, uh, homelessness, street people, street children in Kenya, yes, I had to create a character that could allow us to enter into this experience and take it in. Uh, when I wrote about child trafficking, it was, you know, the same thing. Um, so for me, that's the way to go. Think of a way of making it personal to the character. Let it affect the character very much, and the reader will go with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. Wonderful advice. Um, I want to mention again, the name of the book is New York, My Village by Uem Akpan and published by Norton. And um, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. You're a wonderful interviewer. Ah, thank you. From the Media Factory in the South End of Burlington, Vermont, this is 99.3 FM. WBTVLP Burlington, streaming online at 993wbtv.org. This is Write the Book, the show for writers and curious readers. And that was an interview with U.M. Akpan about his new book, New York, My Village, which is published by Norton. You can learn more about his work at umakpan.com. So this week's Write the Book prompt is inspired by my interview today. Um, The prompt is to write about a time that your own success or advancement was stymied by bureaucracy. Um, As visitors to America can be stymied by the process of trying to get a visa, was your experience further complicated by some kind of prejudice or racism? If not, how might that have changed things for you? Was your goal a matter of life and death? Was it about professional success or was it merely an inconvenience? Consider what it might be like to walk in someone else's shoes for better or for worse, in that same situation, and then write about it. Good luck with your work in the coming week, and tune in next week for another prompt or suggestion. I would love your feedback about Write the Book. Let me know if you would like me to interview certain authors or if you have events to announce. Um, please, if you like the show, do rate it wherever you find it on and where you get your podcasts. Um, and like it on um, social media, talk about it, um, Make sure to tell your friends about it and about the podcast site, writethebook.podbean.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and lots of other podcast sites. You can also access the podcast at my own website, which is shelaughswithoutus.com. 
I'm Shayla Connor Shapiro, and you've been listening to Write the Book. This is 99.3 FM, WBTV LP Burlington, Vermont. Streaming online at 99.3 WBTV.org. Stay well and have a good week.